Father, the joy and the excitement of the first church is unmistakable. Um, God, the, the, just the energy, the life, the vibrancy. And Lord, we live in an age right now that we, we recognize together um, the church seems to have lost steam. There are many who we would call spiritually asleep, Lord. We can even look back at our own lives and, and just remark on, on how vibrant we were in the beginning. And over time, we can atrophy. And so, Lord, we just pray that every part of us would awaken to, to the ministry of your word, to the movement of your spirit, to the life of Jesus, God, that, that we would be a living church in every respect as, as we serve and follow our living Lord Jesus Christ. We welcome you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, um, which is where Jesus fulfilled his promise uh, to empower the first church for mission. Okay, kind of dramatic, hard to miss. And what Jesus did there was he poured out the Holy Spirit on his uh, disciples and those first followers right after uh, his resurrection so that they could do what he'd been doing throughout the Gospels. And what Jesus had been doing was simple. It was bringing God's life and salvation to the lost and, and growing up, uh, you know, just the family of God. This is their call now. And so Jesus simply empowered them for this mission. And we saw those, those first moments, right, as the Holy Spirit came upon these disciples. And suddenly, I, the, the only way I can think of describing it is they just go from you know, being people who had, who had heard it and watched Jesus do it. So they stepped into just a whole new world of life and faith and ministry. And it's really neat to see. So that's day one. It's in the books. So let's turn the page now and see what happened after that. All right. We'll begin with Acts 3. I'll read 1 through 5. Morgan alluded to it a moment ago. But here it is. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Um, chapter 3 opens. It's, it's really fascinating. It opens with two of the apostles, Peter and John, going to the temple to pray. Okay? Temple's very important here. Um, it's very interesting because the temple is the polar opposite. Okay? It's the, it's the extreme opposite from this new church. This new church, folks, 3,000 people just got saved. You know, the Holy Spirit has just been poured out. The, these believers are energized in that first church. You better believe when they got together for worship, honey, they were worshiping, right? They are tuned into the apostles. We read that in, in Acts chapter 2. I mean, this church is just buzzing with excitement and energy and life. The temple is not, okay? The temple is a place of ritual, ceremony. Temple has, has been going year after year after year. We can look in, in the Gospels, and what we see from a lot of that leadership are these are people, many of these priests and these Pharisees and others, they're on cruise control, you know? They became professional at what they did a long time ago, 
And there's a lot of going through the motions. We read about the lifelessness of the temple at the the end of the Old Testament. So the temple is not like the new church. And here's another thing. The temple also wants nothing to do with the church. And they want nothing to do with, with, with Christ or his community. Nevertheless, Peter and John continue to pray for for those in the temple. And they even pray with them. And it's just a beautiful picture of humility and love and outreach and just care for not only the lost out there in society, but but even the the lost in religion. So anyway, they, they go to the temple and the gate outside of the temple is called beautiful. All right. Now, that is quite ironic in this passage because this temple gate, like if you look at any of church history, it was littered with beggars. The poor, the infirmed, the ragged. I mean, they lined this gate. They were all over the place. And and the reason I call it ironic is there is nothing beautiful about this temple in this scene, but something beautiful is about to happen. Something beautiful is about to happen as Peter and John see a lame beggar. And here's the thing about them seeing the lame beggar. They see this beggar the way Jesus sees this beggar. You know, I mean, here is a man everybody tends to miss or dismiss, and Peter looks at him. And then in the next breath, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, commands the man to walk. And he reaches down and he pulls him up to his feet. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And and it's kind of a funny moment because just just seconds before, the man has asked for money, right? And and Peter says to the man, "Uh, oh, we don't have any money. So so the man goes from, uh, you know, hey, look at me. And and he thinks, hey, I'm going to get a hookup here to I don't have any money. And then Peter says, but what I have I give you, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk and raises the man up to his feet. And I love what John Stott here, says here. He says, look, in that moment, it was Christ's power, but it was Peter's hand that raised him to his feet. And again, that just speaks to the partnership that, that we have with God. And the man rises up. And his feet, his ankles, they're strengthened on the way up. And here is this man standing up. He has been lame from birth, but he pops right up. And what we get here is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 6, which says this. It says, your God will come to you. He will come to save you, and the lame will leap like a deer. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, and it has just been fulfilled. Because what is this man doing? This man is not only walking around, he's not only standing, as the old praise song goes, he is walking and leaping and praising God. This man is bouncing all over the temple courtyards, fully healed, fully restored, and it's a miracle. And at this point in the passage, God has ministered to one person, okay? Uh, It's the beggar. He was lame, now he's standing up. So, So God has ministered healing to him, but that is now really about to change because... The crowd, all of these Jewish worshipers who are on their way into the temple, they see this man, okay? And again, you can't miss the man. Why? Because he's like, he's like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. He's bouncing all over the place. The scripture also says he's hugging Peter and John, so he's bouncing around, holding on to these guys, and all these Jewish worshipers going into the temple see it. 
And not only do they see the man, but they know this man. They've, they've passed him time and time again asking them for money. But here he is, up on his feet. And they race over to Peter and John at top speed. And at this moment, Peter now smells something, okay? You know what Peter smells? He smells a divine opportunity. And so Peter does what he just finished doing in chapter 2. Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to this crowd. In verses 12 through 26, he begins saying this, fellow Israelites, and this question cracks me up, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Okay, if we, if we stop here, uh, do you think they have a reason to be surprised? I mean, look at what has just happened. But why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has simply glorified his servant, Jesus. Or you could say it this way. Hey, everybody, this ain't us. This is God showing you who Jesus really is. And then Paul goes on to preach, and by the way, his preaching is textbook. His preaching is pure gospel. He calls them to repent of their sins and to be saved. So here is a message that it, it, it's, it's direct. It includes everything it should in calling someone to Christ. And just so you know, regarding their sins, okay, if you don't know this, Here's a little spiritual fact for you. When it comes to our sin, the sin in our lives, right, especially before Christ, we are all very creative sinners, okay? Um, we sin in different ways. They're unique ways. Um, the sins of one person are probably not the sins of the other. We're all tempted in different ways. But this Jewish crowd, they actually share a sin, all right? They have a specific sin that they all together have engaged in. And their sin is, stop and think about when this happened, this crowd going into the temple, right, in Jerusalem, they all in one way or the other participated in the death of Jesus. Think about that for a second. They participated in the death of Jesus. Uh, Peter goes on to say, they, they together handed him over to Rome to be killed. Um, they disowned Jesus before Pilate. They, they asked that Barabbas, according to tradition, Barabbas, a known murderer, be released and Jesus be killed. This crowd helped to kill the author of life, Jesus Christ. Man, that is one nasty rap sheet. I mean, think about that. That is a nasty rap sheet to set up and then act as judge and jury of not only an innocent, uh, an innocent man, but of the sinless Son of God and your Messiah. Ouch! That's the sin these guys share. But now get ready to hear the amazing grace of God. Because in my, in my, my book, boy, you, you do that, uh, put on the smite boots, strike everyone down. But listen to this. The amazing grace of God for the worst of sinners in verses 15 through 20. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. 
Now, fellow ignorant uh, uh, Israelites, <laughs> I kind of made a new word there. Now, fellow Israelites, I know you added, acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been, been appointed for you, even Jesus. And so what Peter is saying to the crowd is, look, what you did to Jesus Christ, God undid it. And actually, it was God's plan all along. And then here is grace. God knows, and I know, that you acted in ignorance. You know, we talked about sheep last week. Like sheep, you followed your leaders and the rest of the crowd. But even though you acted in ignorance, you still have the blood of the Son of God on your hands. So what Peter is saying is, look, spiritually, you are all as crippled as this beggar was just a few minutes ago. And yet God just healed him. Christ made him whole and strong. So place your faith in Christ so that you can all be clean, whole, and made new. Is that incredible great? The love of God for those who killed his own son. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then Peter adds here an important note of ultimate truth in verses 22 through 23 because he's dealing with the Jewish crowd. He says to them, look, Jesus is the Savior Moses told you about. So listen to him. Place your faith in him. Be rescued and restored. Do that or, and again, here's ultimate truth, Reject God and be cut off. The choice is yours. You talk about a, probably a moment of just sober, deafening silence in all of this. And then I love Peter's final encouragement to them in verse 25. As he says, come on, guys. Come on, listen. Come on. You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. In other words, Peter's saying, look, don't miss out on this. This is the opportunity of a lifetime to know Jesus. And so three ends, and then chapter four begins, and we get a dramatic change in, uh, in the scene here as, as a group wanders in known as the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees do not believe in resurrection. So they wander into the scene, and they hear Peter and John preaching about resurrection, the risen Christ. So the Sadducees using their religious authority, they seize Peter and John and they throw them in jail overnight and then they uh, assemble a kangaroo court, all right? And the next day, the Jewish council gathers and they even have in tow, probably actually leading the way, they have Annas, the high priest. And uh, they begin the interrogation. And here it is. By what power or name, have you two done this thing? Does that strike anybody as strange? By what power or what name have you healed this beggar? They're not even disputing the fact that this man who has laid at the gate his whole life is standing before them, right? So in whose name have you done this? Opening the door for Peter to do for the third time what he's done, preach the gospel once again. And so he tells this council, this is the work of the same Jesus Christ that you crucified. 
this beggar stands before you completely whole based on the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And then Peter ends with the strongest statement imaginable to this council in verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And at this point, this council is astonished. They are flabbergasted by the courage and by the wisdom of Peter and John. Who are these guys? They recognize that these men have been with Jesus. There's been a change in Peter and John. People know where they've come from. I mean, what, what fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, these guys are unschooled. But just look at the authority by which they speak. They're absolutely astonished. So they're left in that state, but they're also left in a real pickle. Because here they are, they've got, they've got three big issues. Number one, the beggar is standing before them healed in verse 14. What are they going to do with that? Um, everyone, uh, Luke also says, every, everyone in Jerusalem also either saw this happen or they've heard about it. So everybody knows what's happened on the street and, and, and see there is no way they can possibly deny the whole situation. And so they use the only bullet left in their gun, which is a threat. And they banned them from speaking in the name of Jesus, prompting the very famous reply. Morgan alluded to it a moment ago in 19 and 20, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges, but as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There you have it. They throw a few more threats, Peter and John's way. They release them to a rejoicing crowd. And that's, that's the end of our passage today. Now, one thing that, that I find very interesting here is the comeback of Peter and John. Um, who are we going to listen to, God or you? This, this is a comeback that has been applied very interestingly throughout the years uh, in the church. I know as a young evangelical, um, this passage was always used as, as a pushback against government, um, especially when government made legislation or policy that went against Scripture. And I want you to know, as your pastor, I am not saying that the church should not take a stand. The church should not use its voice. We should take a stand. We should use our voice. But to use this passage as a basis to resist government is a big stretch. Now, the reason is because uh, here in Acts chapter 4, this is not the voice of government. This is the voice of religion. It's a very important distinction. So, so get that right here, right here in this passage. Religion is trying to stand in the way of, of witness and the Great Commission. Religion is the voice saying, no, 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 no. Uh, do something else, anything else but proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want you to know that didn't just happen back then. That still happens today. Sometimes it happens directly, but quite often in the evangelical church, what happens is very indirect and it's very subtle. One of the dangers that we face as, as Christians who have been here for quite a while uh, in the faith is that we can settle into religion. And I, I referred to that in my prayer. You know how those first days 
Walking with Christ, you're so excited. You know, man, you will witness to, to anything that moves and maybe even practice on inanimate objects. I mean, we're just on fire with the gospel. But as time goes by, quite often we spend time in the church. You know, after a while, we've been there, we've done that, we've gotten used to it. And, and what can happen as we settle too deeply into religion is, is that church becomes more about our preferences than it can become about Christ's purposes. You know, one of the, one of the complaints or one of the criticisms of, of the, the evangelical church right now is that we spend more time taking care of ourselves, looking after ourselves with programming that really benefits us. Spiritual comfort can very easily become the number one priority of us in the church over the, over the long haul. And when we think about ministry to, to, to the lost, evangelism, reaching out, the mission and the ministry of Jesus, they can actually fade into the background of a church that sings his praises and proclaims his truth. Things like communion with God, intimacy with God, maturity in Christ, being empowered by the Holy Spirit can become optional in the church. It happens all the time. Transformed lives can become something that we're not even remotely about. We can even get to a place in the evangelical church where we maximize the sins of the world and we minimize all of our own. And the point here is very clear. We have to be very careful who we are listening to in the Christian faith. And so question, I, I would ask you to ask that question to yourself. Who, who are you listening to in your lives? I've been asking myself all week long, is it my flesh? Is it what, what, what I want? Is it, is it the, the, the radical right or the radical left? Are, are, are even news sources filling my head more than the gospel? Or am I listening to Christ? Am I listening to the word of God? Am I listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Those are really good, sobering questions to ask right here in, in uh, Acts chapter 3 and 4. I'll tell you what one of the keys, though, is. What's one of the keys to all of this, of really tuning in, it's what chapter 3 opens up with. Again, where are Peter and John going uh, in, in verse 1? They're going to the temple to do something. What is it? It's pray. Prayer really is, is offered to us here as a solution for this lethargy, for this falling back into religion. Peter and John are on their way to pray. And I really believe there's a lesson here about worship and witness. And by the way, if you boil down what we are to be all about as the church of Jesus Christ, it is worship and witness. Both of those begin in prayer. And, and I just wonder for all of us today, what if we locked on to prayer like the first church did in, in the book of Acts, in Acts 1 through 4, asking God, you know, asking God for eyes to see the way Peter and John had eyes to see, the way Jesus had eyes to see. You know, if walking around in this earthly life in our everyday, you know, just kind of, people turn into like extras in a movie. We don't even see them. But what if we had eyes to see who God was working in, who God was, would have us reach out to? What if we prayed for the wisdom to know which doors to step through 
and, and who to talk to or, or who to love in that moment? What if we ask God for the courage to follow the Spirit's leading and to even speak truth, truth to power at times? The first church was a people who waited prayerfully for God to fall upon them in Acts chapter 1. After Pentecost, right, after that big explosion and that falling of God's power upon them, they go back to prayer in Acts chapter 2, and they remain in prayer daily. We see that in, in Acts chapter 3 as they motor along in Christ's mission. Lord, use us with that attitude. Jesus said this, my house will be called a house of prayer. That's who we're called to be. Let me pray for us now. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the beautiful example of the first church. And Father, I love that, that this church is raised up in the midst of institutional religion. And Father, I know that, that when we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and maybe even that crowd in Acts chapter 3 walking numbly, blindly almost, to go through their ritual uh, into the temple. You, you raise up this church in the midst of all of that. And Father God, we just ask you today to show us where we may have wandered into religion. God, give us eyes to see where we have grown comfortably numb or maybe, maybe even where, where we have unplugged from you. Lord, show us where, what our lives are to be about God, help us to, 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 to just reorient to your great commission into being people who, who are like apostles and those first followers just saying, Lord, use me. God, I ask that you would set us ablaze with your purposes and to fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. God, cause us to be a people of prayer who are led by your Spirit to, to minister life in this day, in this age. We love you. We honor you. We thank you, God, for this beautiful story and that you're calling us to take our place in it. In Jesus' name, amen.